Welcome back to Mission 150. So last week we talked about John N. Andrews and how he finally came to go to Europe and how eventually it cost him his life serving as a missionary there due to overwork, um, pouring all of his money into the work and not into his own nutrition, uh, coming, becoming sick and dying of tuberculosis. Um, but I think this is a good point to start thinking about what happened after Andrews came and also how significant was Andrews coming? I think those are important questions because after all, um, Andrews being dispatched could have been a false start. Given the history that we talked about in episodes one and two of the way that the church was so reluctant for a number of years to send a foreign missionary, actually sending to Andrews and then discovering once he gets there, the Swiss brethren can't support us. You need to be sending us regular sums of money and ever more sums of money. Um, you could actually imagine Seventh-day Adventists, in theory, you could imagine them saying, no, we've gone into this too quickly. It's not working. It's not working. This isn't what we signed up for. It's not what we expected. We thought the Swiss were going to be self-supporting. Let's call it, let's draw a line under this. Well, part of the decision to send one of their best was probably to mitigate that because there were a thousand questions that they needed to answer. Half of those questions, they didn't even know what to ask. Right. They didn't even, it's, it's the unknown unknowns yeah, to go back it, to Donald Rumsfeld. It's, it's the price of pioneering. Right. You want to be a pioneer? Okay, then you're going to be doing things that you're not certain of, asking questions that you never imagined, having to find answers to things that you never thought of. Right. So they send their detail-oriented, high IQ, high conscientious, you know, focused guy, right. Andrews. And he struggles through many things that, that we can't even begin to imagine. Some things work out, some things don't work out. But the leaders back in Battle Creek do not give up on this. Absolutely not. And I think that's partly because you've got James and Ellen White who are 100% committed to this. And we talked about that in episode two of the podcast. They have always been convinced that the mission has to go into all the world. It's not enough just to reach foreigners who've emigrated to the United States. They have always been quite clear on this. And I think, uh, but I think there's another point, which is, is to me, um, Andrew's going to Europe is one of those things that it breaks a logjam. The, the pressure is built up. They've, because they, I, think, I think deep down they really know that they should be going into all the world, or at least they suspect it, despite the fact that their American exceptionalism tells them, all you really need to do is reach people who've emigrated to the States, because the States is the most important and the most godly part of the world, so that's all God expects us to do. We talked about that in episode one. Um, but I think deep down, must, many of them must have suspected for quite some time, this is what we should be doing. So finally they do it, it so happens. So finally they do it and they never go back. And indeed what happens is that then thereafter, they start sending out more and missionaries to newer parts of the world. Does it get easier? Do they have policies and, and protocols in place that make it somewhat easier or not? I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> Remember the church is still very small. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, the, the General Conference Executive Committee, which today has around 300 members back then, had three. The president and two other members. Um, so it's not even a committee. It's just it's a small group at that point. Um, and they have annual General Conference sessions, which means they can thrash things out. But how many people are going to General Conference sessions? 15 to 20. 
eventually getting up to 20, the huge number of 25. Um, so it's a relatively small group. Working out policies isn't something that they've yet worked out that they needed to do. But I think once you've got um, one person goes, then they can start to share some kind of knowledge. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, the, so the, the exciting thing is that Andrew's being sent really is a hugely consequential moment because it isn't a false start. In fact, it's just the beginning of a missionary movement. So what other missionaries did they send? So they do send another American missionary to join J.N. Andrews, a man called B.L. Whitney. Um, and fairly soon thereafter, they send a man called Henry P. Holzer. Um, Holzer, inter interestingly, is German-American. So in sending him to Switzerland and work in Germany, they're sending somebody who is culturally aware and linguistically aware. How, where, how do they fund this? Did they have the tithe and offering system already established or not? They, by this time, they did. Okay. By, by, this, by the mid-1870s, they've got this established, though it's, it, it isn't well established. But is it fair to say that it is precisely because of mission that they had to organize themselves properly financially, or those two are not related? No, I think that's right. Because what they have when they first start is something called systematic benevolence, mm. SB. Is, they tend to refer to it just as SB. Um, and gradually they work out a doctrine of tithing and offerings. And yes, I think mission is part of the impulse towards working out, going back and looking at the scripture, looking at tithes, and saying you need this is this is God's ten percent. So I think mission it provides an, an impulse to theology in that case and to organization. But you know it's a great question: How do they afford this? And unfortunately, the economic status of Seventh Day Adventists is one of the historical subjects that's never been studied. Nobody's ever studied that. So we really don't know very much. My suspicion, Sam, is that there were a fair number of quite prosperous Seventh Day Adventists. And I think the problem is we tend to, our knowledge of early Adventists tends to be based on stories of pioneer leaders like James and Ellen White. You know, I can remember as a small boy being gripped by the story of them crossing the Mississippi in an ice storm across the frozen river and the privation they endured in the winter or Andrews and, and Loughborough and these people. But those are the those are the ministers who have to make sacrifices. That's not all of the church members. I see. So we, because of those stories are more prominent, we have the overall picture that Seventh-day Adventists were really hard off. Right. And they gave everything to the mission. Therefore, they were uh, overall really poor. And you have a, right. a and suspicion. There and there wasn't much money for the mission because they are really poor. So my suspicion is actually that there's a fair number of, of affluent Seventh-day Adventists. Not super rich, um, but... If you look at them, they tend to all be farmers and they own their own land and they have the key is that they have some disposable income, Sam. I think that's the key. Actually, we know by the 1890s, one of the interesting documents we have in the General Conference archives is the response to a questionnaire which the General Conference sends out to all the conferences in North America, asking them to send them a list of the names of church members who are worth more than so many thousand dollars a year. And we've got that is a strange request. <laughs> well, it's it's not because they're wanting to target them. Not at the time, but today. <laughs> today, today, exactly. It today, would have been a strange today, request. Today, people would be horrified to think that that information was being shared around on a database. Yeah. Of course, the database back then is a few sheafs of paper. <laughs> um, but the general conference wants to know because they want to know who to target. 
forgiving to, to mission in particular and to the work of the church in the United States. And actually, there is a significant number of people. But that's by the 1890s. But my guess would be that even earlier in the 1870s, you've got a fair number of people who have a disposable income. That's the key. They are not just engaged in subsistence agriculture, they are, have got cash crops and they've got money and they therefore are able to, 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 to fund this mission effort. And I conclude this partly because they do have a mission effort and they're sending what are not insignificant sums across the Atlantic to Switzerland. And then, as we'll see in a few moments, to Scandinavia and to Britain, they're sending these sums of money. So there must be people who are donating. So you have people that are willing to sacrifice everything to, to, to start and to create this structure that helps us fulfill the mission. You have those that are sacrificing by traveling to different parts of the United States and now the world. And you have those that are sacrificing by giving so that all of this can, can happen. Right. You, you get a clear sense, David, that they really believe this stuff. That Abs to them, yeah. it was a matter of life and death. Otherwise, why go through the sacrifice? Absolutely. So, and there's no question but that they do really believe this. And if you think about it, back in the early 1850s when the movement emerges, you're talking about a few dozen people and then a few hundred people and then a few thousand people. And yet they're taking on huge tasks, even the task of just evangelizing the Midwest of the United States for the small group who are doing it is huge. And yet they're willing to do it because they are so committed. It takes them time to make that mental adjustment and that big ingulp of breath and taking the plunge to say, we've got to go to Europe. Um, but it is a matter of life and death. And, I, and as I say, the, the wonderful thing is that once they've sent somebody to Europe, there's no pulling back. There's no saying this was a mistake. It's no, we've got to double down. We've got to support this. And so they don't have policies, but they do. They are sending missionaries and the missionaries are learning and they're partly learning from each other. So they have Whitney and Holzer who go to uh, to Germany. Eventually, it's we're not going to go quite this far forward, but it's something we need to talk about. Eventually, in 1886, there's a man called Ludwig Conradi goes to Switzerland and Germany. That's a famous name. It is. Now, Conradi had been born in Germany in 1856. He emigrates to the United States in the early 1870s when he's a teenager. In 1878, he becomes a Seventh-day Adventist. And in 1882, he's ordained as a Seventh-day Adventist minister. And four years later, he's sent as a missionary to Germany at the age of 30. And within four years, he's going to take over from Holzer, who I mentioned, another German-American. He's going to take over from Holzer as leader of the church's mission in Central Europe. That's pretty young, especially Ex for Europeans. Absolutely. Um, and the reason is because Conradi is so talented, but you know, also worth pointing out again, as with Holzer, this is a man who is, who can speak more than one language. Mm -hmm. And I mean that metaphorically as well as literally. He not only speaks German, he's grown up in the European culture. He understands in a way that Andrews didn't. And we talked about this in our previous episode, yeah. but Andrews had some culture shock. He took a while for him to adapt. Conradi can do that straight away. But yes, I mean, he's a, he's a young man. And by, by that stage, they are beginning to have policies in place. But when Whitney and Holzer get sent out, they don't have the policies, but they have the money and the church is transmitting the funds that can enable them to do things and, and to make progress. Okay, who else? Well, we have to 
backtrack a little to 1877. So it's three years after Andrews goes, there's a man called John Mattison. And we talked about him in episodes. A Danish guy. A Danish guy, exactly. Mm. We talked about him in episodes one and two. He was born in Denmark in 1835. When he was 20, he emigrated to the United States. So that's 1855. He became an Adventist in 1863 and embraces Seventh-day Adventism, embraces mission, which is why we talked about him in episodes one and two. Um, in 1872, he becomes editor of the church's Danish language periodical because they have a Danish language magazine. It's called Advent Tidend or Adventist Tidings. Now, in 1872, it's not aimed so much at Denmark and Norway because back then the Danish and Norwegian languages are pretty similar. It's not the sort of thing you can say to a Norwegian today, but back then there's really only one language. And if you write, publish in Danish, you cover Denmark and Norway. The languages have become more different. In the years mm -hmm. since, um, that journal is aimed at the Danish migrants to Minnesota and Wisconsin and the Dakotas, the Midwest and north of the United States, because they had the view that we need to reach the the migrants in the United States, and that's how we are fulfilling and that's our commission. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Initially, that's how we'll yeah. honor the 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 but, prophecies of Revelation and the Gospel Commission. So he's editor of this of this magazine, but. Danish Adventists who are receiving it start sending it back to their family members who they've left behind in Denmark and Norway. And you start to get a group of Sabbath keepers. And Madison, meanwhile, has already said he wants to see the third angel's message taken to the world. So eventually so he has a, a, a development in his own theology of how he sees this. And obviously now he is going to apply at some point. Absolutely. So he himself moves from beyond saying, OK, all I need to do is reach my fellow immigrants. No, this is the chance to take it back to the old world. But the great thing is um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is willing to do this. Because again, you might think they will say, well, all right, we've sent Andrews to Switzerland and we've got to double down on supporting him. Because let's we're... see how it goes. Right. No, they're like, let's go. Three years later, let's send not only another missionary, but to a completely different part of the world. And so uh, in 1877, he goes to Denmark. Um, and pretty soon he starts working in Norway as well. Norway back then was actually part of Sweden. It was, uh, it was sort of like Scotland in the United Kingdom. It's okay. got a, a quasi separate status, but it's, it's actually part of the Swedish kingdom, but it has its own independent identity. So he goes, he starts in Denmark where he's from, moves to Norway because he's got an in with the language. And then he starts working in Sweden as well. And Swedish is similar. To, to Danish, Norwegian, but it's, it's a separate language. And so that's why it takes him a little while. But he works in all three Scandinavian countries. Now, he sends literature beforehand. So he uses media to prefer, prepare the ground. Right. And, and especially the relatives also are right. sending. And so when he arrives in Denmark, he finds there's already Seventh-day Sabbath keepers there because they've been persuaded by reading Adventist tracts. It's not just the journal, by the way. They were publishing translations of Adventist books. I see. Into Danish and, and pretty soon they start doing it into Swedish as well. All published out of Battle Creek, Michigan, though. Madison eventually starts the Adventist publishing work in Scandinavia. Okay. Uh, but initially all their materials in Danish and Swedish are actually being printed in Battle Creek, circulated to the immigrant communities in the Midwest of the States, but also sent back to Europe. But so, yeah, Madison arrives to find there's already Seventh-day Sabbath keepers there. So that gives him a springboard. But we're talking about a few handfuls of people. Whereas by the time he leaves, which is 11 years later, 
We're talking about nearly a thousand believers across the three Scandinavian countries. Wow. So that just shows the difference, which, and we talked about this in episode two, Ellen White makes the point, publications are good, but a living, breathing messenger, as she would call it, or a minister who goes with the publications makes them that much more effective. Look, I, I think that if God just wanted to deliver a message to the whole world, he would, uh, he would appear in the sky and just do it. Right. He doesn't need us for that. Or send visions. Or, or, yeah, to every human being. And, you know, I'm, I'm coming back. Uh, you would do well to get ready. That would be a great message. Yes. But he doesn't do that. He instead, and, and probably because people would just get scared and, and fearful, um, and, and it's very difficult to worship that which you fear. Yes. Uh, so he sends people to deliver a similar message, fear God and give him glory. Yes. Uh, but it's people who are delivering that message, who experience God's love, and are now sharing that with others. And what that means too is that God has given us the amazing privilege of enlisting us in his mission. Yeah. Uh, and and that, means, that means something different for us. Hmm. And it means we're immediately looking beyond ourselves, which I think is the essence of Christianity. Um, if we knew that somebody else, even if it's God, is going to do it all, that's going to change the way we think. And Ellen White, of course, famously writes and says the prosperity of the work at home, wherever home may be, she means America, but it could have meant Germany or Britain by that stage because she's writing around 1901 or Australia. The prosperity of the homework depends in large part on the reflex influence of the evangelistic work conducted in countries afar off. Because what she's saying is that when you are focused outwards, when you're focused on giving instead of receiving, it does something to you. And it makes you, not only, not only does it make the church successful in those far off regions, but it makes you more potent in your own locality because you're, that's the kind of person you are. On the one hand, you always start in, as Jesus put it, in Jerusalem, then you go to Judea and, and so on, in Samaria and the ends of the earth. So right. to some degree, if, if somebody's listening to this and they wanna be a missionary, start with where you are. Right. right? If, you're not, if, you're, if you don't have the burden to help people fall in love with Jesus that are near you, it's unlikely you're going to grow that burden somewhere else because wherever you go, you are there. Yes. Right? So it's but equally, what we can say to people is who, who may have grown up as Seventh-day Adventists hearing mission stories and yet feeling, I, I'm, I don't have the, the skill set um, or perhaps the health or the other personal circumstances to go to um, China or India, or indeed a big city in Europe, which are now as, go as godless as any places yes. in the world. Yes. I don't have that. I'm, God is still calling you to be what we used to, in our, uh, our uh, Adventist dialect, used to call home missionaries. Mm -hmm. um, though that said, I do want to stress that at, you know, Ellen White's words were very powerful, and Adventists always put a premium on what they called foreign mission. Of course, foreign implies, well, foreign to where? Back then it meant not America or Germany or Scandinavia or Britain or Australia um, and maybe South Africa. Um, today, of course, foreign means mission anywhere outside my homeland. But Adventists always put a premium on foreign mission because they understood that people in the homelands had to be supporting it, that there was no way you were going to evangelize Latin America or Africa or Asia unless the people in the homelands yeah. stepped up and gave the money. So we've always put a premium on foreign mission, but we've always also had that concept of 
home mission and home missionaries. So if there are people listening to this who feel a calling to be a missionary, but maybe it's just not working out um, to be a missionary overseas because there's only so many positions the church has available, or maybe as I say, for personal circumstances, they don't feel that they can do it. You've still got that opportunity to be a home missionary, to work in Judea and Jerusalem, yeah, as, as, yeah, yeah. as you put it. But in that case, what do you do to support the work in the rest of the world? You can give, you can give, of your financial resources and you can pray yes and you can choose particular missionaries or countries and be praying for people in them so work it's it's not that the two things are necessarily antithetical by any means even those who are engaging in home missionary work can still be supporting the mission work yes. the, the cross-cultural the pioneer mission work in reaching people groups who haven't yet been reached for example we talked about a concept of of a principle that was there from the very early organization of the church which was we will uh, bring our our resources together we will not fragment into multiple denominations we'll be one one structure because of mission yes the mission has a church and that church will be focused on We'll take the resources from these locations where the church is strong, where the church is strong so that we can invest in a new area. Yes. So local conferences take the resources from all the local churches and they focus on a village or a city that does not have uh, a presence yet. And so they they plant a church over there. Unions generally, as it relates to a country, do the same and, and divisions and the general conference. We all have projects that reach places that would otherwise not be reached because the church is, not be reached. Exactly. is weak there. Now, yes. I, I think there is a, one of the golden things in this principle is if God is going to give resources so the mission can grow in these difficult places, somebody's bank account will be wealthier. <laughs> yes. Right? You don't have God sending money out of nowhere. Right. Now, when you have people that are committed to mission and and they have a, a consistent track record of giving, of investing, of praying, of, of helping, it is likely that God will bless those locations because that's how the funds get to this new area yes. that he wants to reach. Yes. Sometimes we are reticent, however. Sometimes we have new projects for ourselves and we don't want to invest in something that is abroad. We want to focus on, sure. on home. But I think in the next 10 years, as we mentioned before in this podcast, the emphasis will be that parts of the world that usually have open arms to receive missionaries and resources now need to wake up and to the degree that they can, even if it's a small degree, mm. they need to look at, let's use the resources that we have, small though they are, to help the mission to proceed and to grow elsewhere. Yes. And sometimes... Missionaries will go that are not fully sponsored by the church. You had this in the, it, it, at around that same time when we started sending missionaries, right? Absolutely. You mentioned Egypt to yeah. me offline. Tell me more about that. So there's a man called H.P. Ribton who gets converted. Um, he's living in Italy. He's American, but he's living in Italy. And he becomes convicted that he wants to take the Seventh-day Adventist message to Egypt. We don't know why, but he is impelled by this. He's a doctor and he goes as a self-supporting missionary. And I think at times we, you asked, are there policies and policies are important. Um, and I myself am what's called an international service employee because I'm from Britain, but I'm working in, Aust in, in America. 
Um, I was actually grew up in Australia and was born in India because my parents are missionaries. So in theory, I'm a missionary, Sam, because I'm working in a different division to where I'm from. Obviously, I have a very easy missionary life because it's in the United States. Um, but we, and so policies are great. Policies are absolutely important. And I see that myself because they sort of govern my life to some extent. Um, but also what you need is people who act outside the regular church channels, who will fund themselves and will not be totally autonomous and ignoring the church structure because Ribton, when he went to Egypt, didn't ignore the church. He sent reports back, um, but he was convicted and the church was very small. They didn't have the resources to send missionaries to the Arabic speaking world, the Muslim world. He does it because he feels convicted and you know, maybe God put that conviction in his heart. Um, so he goes there in 1881 and he builds up a congregation of Seventh-day Adventists in Alexandria in Egypt in 1881. Um, none of them are actually Arabic speaking. None of them are Muslims because Alexandria is one of the world's, well, back then it was one of the world's major ports. It's still one of the Mediterranean major ports. And so it was a very cosmopolitan city. Uh, and so his converts were Greek speakers, Armenian speakers, who were already members of Christian denominations or churches. But now he was sharing with them the full gospel, the prophetic truth that Seventh-day Adventism has. And he builds up this congregation of Seventh-day Adventists. The sad thing is, is that in 1882, there's a nationalist revolt in Egypt. Uh, people reacting against the influence of the European powers in Egypt, um, which sadly for them only leads to the conquest of Egypt by Britain and France and then becoming effectively a, a British colony for the next 70 years. Hmm. But there is this nationalist revolt, and part of it is there is massive violence in Alexandria. And foreigners get targeted by the Alexandrian mob, who are mostly native Egyptians, Arabic speakers. Nationalistic. And nationalistic, focus, exactly. Right. So any foreigner is an enemy. Any foreigner point. is an enemy. And Ribton gets murdered. Oh, David. And we think probably all of his congregation were murdered. If there's any survivors, they actually end up leaving the country out of fear. So the church has this mission outpost in Egypt as early as 1881, and then it's snuffed out in 1882, and nothing starts again in Egypt until 1897. So it's a, this is an example of a, um, of a, a premature uh, a step, as it were, in, in mission. Um, as far as we can tell, but God may have had other purposes, right? Because God true. sends him there and he could have spared him. That's true. Uh, but the tragedy happens. And you did not prepare me for that ending of that story. I <laughs> uh, well, and, and, and for all we know, some of those Greek and Armenian speakers contribute to the growth of Seventh-day Adventists because by the late 1880s, there is an Adventist working in Constantinople, what today is Istanbul, mm -hmm. working with Greek and Armenian speakers. And the church starts to grow in the Ottoman Empire amongst Greek and Turk and Armenian speakers. And some of that may be due to Ribton. But if we have to say that's one example where the church starts a mission and probably because it's self-funding, when Ribton is murdered, there's no institutional heft behind it to say, right, we need to send somebody else. And Adventists are aware that Ribton is dead. They're very, they're very sad, but they don't feel the need to invest in that, partly because, of course, they've got 
this European field that they mm -hmm. have to take care of. And by then, they've also now got a separate mission outpost in Britain. John Loughborough? John Loughborough, mm. exactly, exactly. Um, and Britain was important to Americans, partly, of course, because at that stage, the great majority of Americans were descended from uh, English, Scottish, and Irish people. And they speak English, which They helped. speak English. And of course, at this point, the British Empire is the empire in which the sun never sets. Um, if you want to send missionaries to other parts of the world, they probably have to go through Britain anyway. As late as 1914, they send an American mess, uh, missionary and his family to Buenos Aires, mm. and they go via Liverpool, because there's no direct sailing from New York to Buenos Aires. When I discovered this a few years ago, I was astonished. It was like, surely Buenos Aires is a major port. Surely there'd be a, a direct sailing from New York to, to Buenos Aires. But there wasn't. You had to go via Liverpool. So... Adventist church leaders are actually quite strategic about this. They recognize if we can have a foothold in Britain, this can help us in a lot of other ways. So now they're thinking of geopolitics. They're thinking of, of, right. of and leveraging the world structure to help mission. Exactly. Because if you've, got, if you've got a church presence in Britain, maybe you can get permission to start in all these British colonies in a way that you wouldn't if you were coming straight from America. And you'll have people who can support missionaries as they're being sent out sailing via Liverpool and Southampton and Glasgow, these great ports from which commerce goes right around the world. So they are thinking strategically and, and as you say, almost geopolitically. So Loughborough spent some time in California. Loughborough has, exactly, New Loughborough, England. as we discussed about in our last, uh, in episode two, rather, um, had been the first missionary. That's what they call him when they send him to California. He's worked all around the United States. And in 1879, he gets sent to Britain. So the, the, the spread of the missionary work goes 1874 to Switzerland, 1877 to Scandinavia, 1879 to Britain. And the thing is that Madison and Loughborough are not under Andrews. Andrews is in theory, as it were, the, the kind of overarching leader for, for the mission work in Europe. Andrews doesn't die till 1883. Um, and he remains in Switzerland. But the distances are too great. Andrews can't be directing what's happening in Britain or Scandinavia. So you have to leave it to the man on the ground who is Madison in Scandinavia and Loughborough. Though, interestingly, Andrews, who had visited Britain himself several times by 1880, goes to Britain in the summer of 1880 to help Loughborough. And he gives him good advice. For example, one of the things Loughborough does is, well, Loughborough is, is, is still an American parochial, parochialist to some extent, because Loughborough basically says, the things that used for me, that, that, that worked for me in the Midwest and the West Coast of the United States will work for me on the South Coast of Britain. And it didn't. And it didn't. It totally <laughs> I, didn't. I could have told you that. <laughs> um, so he goes to Southampton because he has people who are interested in the Seventh-day Sabbath there from reading Adventist literature. And he's like, I know what works because it worked for me in the Midwest and the West Coast. I'll put up a tent. Because America is a very egalitarian society and using big tents for mission, and Loughborough wasn't the only person who did this, that happened all across the, the United States, many other people, including James White and, and, and many other people. So Loughborough, when he pitches a tent and does an evangelistic meeting in Michigan, say, or New England or California, he gets people of all social classes coming. 
people of every social class come. But Britain is a very, very hidebound society with, with, with social class being all important and a tent to middle class people is redolent of the carnival, of yeah. the circus, yeah. something that's innately lower class that you don't want to be associated with. And so Loughborough, to his surprise, discovers that he's only getting very working class people. We know that because he actually has to teach them to read before he can study the Bible with them. Those are the people who are coming to his tent in Southampton. And Andrews comes to visit him and says, look, no, here's what I've learned. In Britain and in Switzerland, you have to hire expensive halls because that's the only way that you're going to get people from the middle class come. Otherwise, you're only going to be reaching the working class. Not that we don't want to reach the working class, of course, but you're wanting to reach a spectrum of society. So, so Andrews comes across, the sad thing is Loughborough doesn't take his advice seriously. Loughborough is like, no, I know what's going to work. Um, he's trying his best, but this is an example of, if not culture shock, the cultural adaptation a missionary has to make. The Loughborough thinks what works in the old world will work in the new world. It's not necessarily so. How long does it take so. him to, to wake up? I don't think he ever really does. He's there for four years um, and he's still basically using the same means. And here's the thing. Ellen White, a few years later, writes to two young men who are going as missionaries to Norway to give them advice and says, it's very important that the new work starts out right. And she uses Britain as an example where it didn't. I remember those quotations because in either on, on those or others, I remember when I was a pastor in England looking at uh, how she described the work in England. And she mentions the need when you work in the cities to have solid investments yes. to spend more than she, you would normally. She actually writes to these two young missionaries about Britain. She says, if the brethren had not moved in so cheap a way. That's the sentence. That's exactly right. If they had not right. moved in so cheap a way, the work in old England would be much farther advanced than it is now. That's exactly what yeah. she writes. And watch, it's a jab at Loughborough, though she doesn't single him out, because Loughborough was like, I've only got limited resources, I know what will work, I'll just pit, buy a tent. But, you know, I, I, it, this, is part of, this is part of what happens when you send missionaries out and they're working in a place they've never worked before. Sometimes they're going to make mistakes. Ellen White was very pragmatic from that sense. Let's, let's see what works and what doesn't, and let's learn lessons, and let's change as we go along. I think Ellen White is always highly pragmatic. Um, but also it shows that she, you know, she, she herself is used to, to preaching in tents and she actually singles out the point that, you know, that he should have hired expensive halls. And, and she says words to the effect of he should have gone, he should have acted as though he had glorious truths that would be triumphant. In other words, not, not be apologetic and hiding somewhere poor, take the best place. Take the best place yeah, and act as though you've got something that everyone will want to hear. And she says God would have supplied the means. We we're still don't think like that in most parts of the world. We don't. We usually have three, four families that start in a back street somewhere. And when we have a, a church that has grown in a main area, in a main street, we often sell it so that we can sponsor more churches in the backwaters. We, we don't think from that perspective of, right. of being where people are. Right. Um, and I wonder how long it will take for us to be a little bit more pragmatic. And I think the problem is, you know, we we don't actually pay attention to Ellen White's writings very often. 
we read the same few quotations again and again, Sam, and we don't actually... To verify our beliefs already. To verify what we already believe. We use them as, as proof texts, basically. Mm -hmm. This, this, this. And we don't actually look at her advice and... And yet it's there and it's highly pragmatic and much of it is still applicable to the world we live in today, even though she was writing in the 19th and early 20th century. In, in some way, David, in, when it comes to methodology of mission, which I believe is her, her main goal is to help the Adventist church fulfill its mission. Yes. Uh, whereas the Bible is for every human being alive. I think the same thing applies. If you are reading the Bible and nothing bothers you and you're pretty happy with it, you're not reading it right. Yes. With Ellen White. <laughs> well said. With Ellen White, I think it's the same. If all you're reading is just reinforcing your own beliefs, you're not reading it right. Yes. Uh, there should be things that will challenge you to take the next step and to be better at, at, at some things. Great point. Final Great point. question before we wrap up this episode. You have lived through these stories and, and you have pointed out one of the stories that ends in tragedy. That's very different from what we normally get in the back of, of mission reports. Mm -hmm. Yes. We're going to be visiting many of these tragic stories throughout this podcast for the next, however many episodes we do in this year and next year. Two questions. One, what has led you to dedicate your life so that these stories are known and we cherish them and we remember them? What took your interest, you know, as a historian many years ago mm. and, and you're still at it and you can communicate beautifully those stories? And the second question is, how can the stories of tragedy help us in future episodes? So I think it's because my parents are missionaries and I was born in India and I, I, I left when I was a small child, so I only have a few memories of it. But it's always been really important to me as a part of my identity. But my parents are missionaries. Um, I was born to missionaries serving in the mission field. Uh, my uncle and aunt, uh, one of my aunts and her husband, both served as missionaries. And in fact, he died as a missionary in Papua New Guinea uh, when he, he went back when he wasn't in good health. So in a sense, he gave his life even in the, the 1980s, that could still happen. Um, so it's been a very important part of my identity. Um, and also as an historian, I've always felt that the historian has the ability to do posthumous justice to people, the people who've been forgotten or misrepresented, that the historian has the opportunity and therefore almost the obligation to posthumously do justice to those people who have either been misrepresented or have been overlooked. Um, the second, your second question, why do the stories of missionary tragedy matter? And you're right, we're going to tell some of those stories. I think we touched on this in a previous episode, and I'm sure we'll touch on it again, that in certain parts of the world today, people say the mission work is done. I don't need to contribute. I don't need to give. I don't need to serve. I don't. I'm need just going to wait for the second coming. It's fine. Or, or I'm going to only work in my own local area. The mission work is done. I just need to concentrate on. It's a very inward-looking. It's the antithesis of Christianity, which is should be outward-looking. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that we've only told stories of missionary triumph. We've had very triumphalist narratives. We've only told stories of missionary success. And so it's not surprising if people think, well, the mission has succeeded. And yes, in Latin America now, South America, Inter-America, the Caribbean, um, Eastern Africa, Southern Africa, Southeast, or the islands of Southeast Asia, the Philippines and Indonesia, the church has done wonderfully well, South Pacific as well. 
But in West Africa, in North Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, much of China and India, and today in Europe, which used to be a mission heartland and is now a mission field, in all those places, the church's mission isn't doing so well and it needs everybody in the world to get on board and contribute whatever they can. So to me, actually, though it's kind of counterinstinctive, perhaps, especially maybe to some of our colleagues in communication, um, we need to tell stories of missionary failure. We need to tell some stories of missionary tragedy so that we bring home the point that, yes, we're doing fantastically well in certain parts of the world, but in other parts of the world, the mission is not yet done and there is a huge amount still to do. You've been watching Mission 150. As you listen to this podcast, we hope that you are inspired to do everything you can to fulfill this mission. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.